Did I get my money's worth? And I drove away from the arena and I asked myself the same thing. Is this like Advent? Where I come and I leave? And as I drew further and further away and thought about the fact that I was headed to the golf course, that I was going to see my grandchildren, my lovely wife, I thought, boy, I almost forgot about King James today, how quickly he left my thoughts. As we drive, as we pass by the manger this Advent season, let us not forget. Let us not just ask the question, did I get my money's worth? But let it change us. Make us more than just a fan. Make us a team player. Make us a part of the family that you've adopted us into. Help us to be true brothers and sisters. True brothers and sisters. True disciples. And let today just be one of the events that bring us closer to you, to that family, to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. Good to see you all. Um, How many of uh, you have studied with me before? All right. So you'll remember what is the first rule of uh, every one of my classes. Every question is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now, actually, the opposite. There is no such thing as a stupid question. You're here to learn. Um, If you're thinking of the question, uh, undoubtedly somebody else is, too. Uh, Having a question is not a reflection on one's spirituality or one's closeness to God, so you're free to ask any question that you want, and hopefully you'll get a good answer. And I mean that sincerely. Um, Okay, so uh, here we are for a four-week course, the title of which is God Is. And uh, before I actually get started about the course, I want to do one piece of uh, business here. This is my young friend Anthony right here. Uh, To show you how old I am, uh, the young woman sitting next to him is his mother. And uh, once upon a time, she actually was in a class of mine at Malone. So now the next generation has come along. And so Anthony is volunteered to be our runner today. He's got the mic. So when you have a question, uh, just raise your hand, and he will come directly to your table. And the reason that we do that is because when people listen to the tapes afterwards, and sometimes even here, we can't hear the question, and then you miss out on the whole discussion. And that's an important part of this class, especially when Dr. Smith is here. Right? No. (laughs) Okay, so um, let me tell you a little bit about this course. Um, uh, The writer John is famous for making what are called propositional statements, and we're going to talk a little bit about propositions today. But a propositional statement is when you declare something, uh, either to be true or false, and do it in such a way that it's, it's to be regarded as Uh, a valid statement, a proposition. And he makes propositional statements about the person of God. And we're going to study the classic ones. Come on in, there's a... I I know, I'm sorry to embarrass you, but... (laughs) Can't sneak in. Uh, He makes propositional statements about God. God is, and then he'll say something about God. So today we're going to be looking at 
uh, Jesus' famous statement, God is spirit. Then the next week, God is love from 1 John 4. Then we'll skip that week, uh, the 27th, and go into January. God is uh, light. And then the final uh, section of the class will be God is personality. And I will show you uh, from the Gospel of John one of the most amazing things about the God of the Bible, not just God's triune nature, but God's personality. So you'll hear me use this term a lot, and sometimes people have a hard time uh, referring to God as a person or a personality. Does anyone want to start us off today by suggesting why that would may, may be? Why when we use the term person, uh, when we're referring to God, does it sometimes jar people or make them feel ill at ease? Or doesn't seem quite right? Anthony, get to it, man. <laughs> Yeah, I know you didn't think you were going to work today, but... Intimacy is difficult between humans, let alone with God. Okay, intimacy is difficult between humans, and then when you, what, make God a person, then that kind of brings in an intimacy factor that seems sort of odd. That's, that's a good insight. Yes? It, it makes me feel God is limited. Uh, why is that? Oh, okay, so because we're persons, uh, then we project, well, then God must be like us, and then and if God's just like us, then we're back with the Greek gods, right? And we don't feel God is that big. That's another good insight, yeah. Yes? I think we always tend to think as a person, male or female, all of us have baggage with a certain male or female, so how can God be perfect if he's a person? So in when you think of person, gender comes up. Gender comes up. And so therefore then that gets real sticky when we start bringing gender into our discussion right. with God, yes. Especially if I think you're intimating that we all have had differing relationships as whatever gender we are, and then we've had differing relationships with other uh, the other gender, and so that <clears throat> all of those together can get qu quite, um, as they say on Facebook, complicated. And so then, well, you, the tendency would be to project uh, that whole mess onto God. That's another great insight. Yes? Anthony? <laughs> Eat another donut. Jesus was a person, and he was God on earth, in the form of a person, so God can't be a person because Jesus was the person. Ah, now that's very interesting. So, and again, we're talking together, so this isn't like right or wrong, but in your mind right now, the way you sketch that out, Jesus is a person because he became a human. Now the question is, and again, we're not refuting or anything, but was Jesus a person before he became a human? And one of my students at Malone, and I'll never forget this, it was um, December of 1989, he asked me the question, was there a Jesus, because it was Christmas time, and we were talking about Jesus' birth, 
was there a Jesus before there was a Jesus? That was his question. I thought that was one of the great questions in all of my classes. Was there a Jesus before there was a Jesus? So was Jesus a person before he became a human? And uh, does anyone want to take a stab at what that might mean? He was a person? What does that mean? Was he a human then? No. No, because the question is, was he a person before he became a human? So what was he before he became a human? He was existing in the form of God. This is what John clearly tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was existing as a personality. How about if we say it that way? What's the difference when we say personality versus person? Uh, you think a personality does not carry the um, uh, baggage of a, of, a, of a body, of a, of a human form. Okay, that's good. Does that help us, personality? Like a lot of times we'll talk about, like the preferable languages will talk about God as a being. And that seems to go down easier with people. Now, why is it easier to talk about God as God is a being rather than God is a person? A person, okay, and so we're getting, we're getting at what I want to get at. A person sounds like a human. So what we've done in our minds is confined personhood to what? To the human experience, yes. Oh, hold on. You sing it every Sunday, right? God in three persons. So this language, and I'm going to show you today how this language came about um, in Christian theology. So, um, yes, now, I just want to set the stage here so that we really maximize from what we're talking about today when Jesus said God is spirit. So, um, we're struggling because personhood has been confined to the human experience, right? That's now, what does the Bible tell us that we are made in? In God's image. So, we're persons, correct? And just give me some of the attributes of personhood that you ascribe to the human experience. What does it mean to be a person as opposed to being an it? A, 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 a person has choice. Uh, a choice, volitional ability. Persons have the ability to choose. We won't say free will because we're in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, what is person? If you're made in the image of God and, and, God, then, and we're persons, then that must mean obviously what? God's a, a person, right? Because you have personhood because God has personhood. So therefore, then personhood 
is entailed what? What does it entail? It doesn't it just entail the human experience. It's something beyond the human experience. Personhood implies the ability to choose, to create, to make something. Uh, uh, the ability to love willfully, not just primal animal affection, but to wilf willfully and consciously choose to love. Awareness of uh, boundaries. Um, uh, animals have that too. Um, Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I think you're on the right road in terms of capacities that humans have, but I want to get at... Uh, it applies all to uh, animals and plants, too. They all die. Personhood. Judge. Uh, intellect. Self-awareness. The ability to critically evaluate and logically process information. For self. For <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. And <clears throat> I mean, the whole legal struggle with defining a personhood is a massive one in the courts today. All right, so all of those constituent elements when the Bible says that humans are made in the image of God, it implies all of those things. Intellectual ability volitional ability, what is called affective uh, dimensions, the ability to love and have compassion, and uh, all of these things go into making up persons that are in the image of God. So what we've done, as all humans tend to do, hold on one second, is since we tend to be anthropocentric, we tend to look at things from the human experience, we think that personhood, because we have it, is defined by us. Do you see how that would happen? And actually what we experience is a <coughs> only a reflection of ultimate personhood. And besides God, there are other persons that we know about from the Bible too. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith. How come you don't ever talk about the capacity to hate? Well, I said affect, affective oh, dimension. Oh, that was over my head. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean the, uh, the, the realm of emotions linked with certain kinds of intellect. So, you know, if hate is something more than just uh, what my shepherd does when she decides to explode in fury on something with no rationality attached to it per se, it has something to do with a person who has reasons for the hatred. So, yeah, it... I'll grant you. Just put it in his face. It's fine. <laughs> the emotion of hate, you know, I, I in scripture, other than behavior, God, you know, and Jesus, the money changers, throwing them out. But it was the conduct, not the individuals, so hate was kind of a foreign concept. So how does that play to what we're talking about, God and hate versus what we love to think of as God as love? Well, I'll, I'll thank you for bringing that to my attention, and I'll try to talk a lot about that next week when we do. That's, and <laughs> she's always right, right? <clears throat> 
I will say this about this. I, I, I actually studied that story about Jesus in the temple quite carefully. And uh, there's a famous painting. I don't know some of you may have seen it. And it shows Jesus with an upstretched arm and the, the robe has fallen away to reveal uh, something that kind of looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger's forearm <laughs> with a big ribbon of, um, or maybe like a Mennonite's forearm, a construction worker, uh, and he's got this whip in his hand. And of course, art is the way that these images get into our mind. Um, that's the furthest thing from the truth. What the master really did was go and collect, according to John, a, a bunch of reeds, which are like grasses, and tie them together. And what he did, whoops, is shoo the uh, cattle and the sheep out of the temple, uh, which would be customary. I, I don't know if you've ever worked with animals, but you can do massive amounts of punishment on them and it doesn't phase them at all. Uh, one time I tried to get a pig go into a, um, into a cart so we could put a ring in its nose and it wouldn't move and I punched it as hard as I could in its rear end and it folded my wrist over. <laughs> so um, if you think, oh Jesus is, you know, people use this all the time, Jesus is exploding in rage and he's uh, beating people and uh, that's not really what happened. He was demonstrating uh, what would be called holy indignation and was making theater a display, but he didn't hurt anybody. And he certainly didn't hurt anybody with uh, a bunch of grass uh, weeds in his hand. Does that make sense? So, so I mean, that's not, well, you know, like the polarization of hate and love and rage and caring about people and just destroying something. If we're going to use that story, we have to make sure we put it in its context. He's not destroying anything. He's not hurting anybody. He's doing sacred theater. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I think that that picture with him showing powerful forearms and uh, biceps is not inappropriate. A carpenter or a mason, they have good size arms. I don't, maybe Jesus was ripped. I have no idea. Uh, probably he was, but the point I'm making is what? When you, when you accentuate the storyline to show a muscular forearm with blood coursing down its big, uh, what is that uh, vein? Uh, it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's something that's characteristic of everybody that lifts, out, lifts a lot and works out. You get a big vein, it's, it's a sign of masculinity. Uh, anytime you've hung around in a garage, right, and seen guys working on cars, when the shirts come off and when those, it's called a basilisk vein. That's what it is, right? <laughs> and it's the sign of somebody that's done a lot of work. But my point is they're making the master look out to be like what? An enraged, um, bully? Um, and uh, that picture does that. When you read it carefully in the text, it, he only shooed the animals out. He didn't use the whip on any people. Okay, so um, all of these things I'm asking you to think about because we're entering into four weeks of studying about the difference about propositions and persons. And this personhood thing is going to become very um, important, and here's why. Uh, if you have this little 
uh, handout that I made for you. Down at the bottom, I'm not going to read it, but there's like a little overview of the course, and I'll just tell you what I hope that's going to happen here. We're going to be seeing a lot of propositions about God, statements about God. God is, God is, God is. But what's important to know is that in the Bible, <coughs> propositions always point us to the person of God. And the stickiest thing in theology is to make sure you don't get stuck on the propositions and not go into the persons of God. Uh, another way of putting it is to consistently stay back and focus on what the propositions are saying and only look at them rather than entering into the persons that the propositions are pointing you to. Does that sort of make sense what I'm saying? I'll, uh, I'll try to get at it and get to it right now so that we can see more clearly what I'm trying to say. So here's what we're going to try to do today. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about propositions and persons a little bit more. Uh, then I want to take you to John 4, number 2, and show you the, the historical origin for this statement. God is spirit. Literally in Greek it says spirit is God. And that's the way you talk if you want to sound like Yoda. <coughs> you have any Yoda fans here? Spirit is God. That's what Jesus originally said, and it's reversed for our English ears. And then the last thing I want us to look at today is what does Paul mean by, and this is a proposition. I'm going to read it to you now so you can start thinking about it. It's an amazing statement. Therefore, from now on, we recognize or know no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet, now we know him in this way no longer. And he goes on to say, if anyone is in Christ, uh, they are a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But I want us to conclude and think about this. What does he say? We don't know anybody according to the flesh any longer. That's something for us to think about. God is spirit. We don't know people according to the flesh any longer, Paul says. In fact, we don't even know Jesus that way. We used to know Jesus according to the flesh, but now we don't know him that way any longer. Isn't it an amazing statement? How many of you are familiar with this verse? It's, it's not a verse that people talk about a lot, and I, this is something that we're really going to have to struggle with, so just start thinking about that. All right, um, this section, I want to talk about propositions and persons, okay? Uh, spirit is God in Greek, pneumahotheos. It's a proposition pointing to a personality. Who's the personality? God. The proposition is a statement. God does exist, and God is spirit. That's a propositional statement. It's making a declaration of truth, and it's saying that there is a person, God, that is a spirit. Now, I want to give you a couple definitions of propositions from U.S. history. These will be usage definitions, so we can start thinking about uh, what this idea of a proposition really is all about. So here's, on the left-hand side, a, a statement that you will recognize from American history. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, uh, who, written by who? Tom Jefferson. Uh, 1776, Declaration of Independence. There's a proposition in there. What's the proposition? That all humans, all men are created equal. Yes, that's the proposition. Now, uh, 87 years later, notice Abraham Lincoln's commentary on this. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to what? To the proposition that all men are created equal. So what does Lincoln do? What Jefferson calls a truth, Lincoln calls a proposition. And so that's a great usage definition uh, of just the way people use language of how we can understand what a proposition is. A proposition is a claimed true statement. You're saying something's true. Now, uh, yes? But even if you assume it's not true, you could abide by it. In other words, it, it, it's a proposition in that it may or may not be true. Oh, that's right. Just because something is... But the is idea is, is we're going to assume it's true so we can form this country this way. All right. You're exactly right. All propositions are like that. They're declared statements that I'm saying this is true. It doesn't make them to be true. Can anyone think of a proposition, by the way, that would be flat-out false, just to prove his point? <laughs> I'm afraid that fails, Dan. <laughs> I know. A false proposition. Um, you mean the statement is faced because it's inelegantly uh, uh, phrased? I'm just saying it can be heard and interpreted that way. Right, but what they meant it to mean, what the framers meant, was what? Before, right. Well, yeah, they may have meant male, white, uh, blah, 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 but... Uh, Technically, theoretically, philosophically, they were making a statement that what? All humans derive their personhood, their life, their creaturehood, their dignity, and their rights from where? God. Now, if you want to get to the next issue, which I'm going to bring up, uh, can there exist a gap between a proposition and the lived experience of a person and what that proposition claims to be true. Can there be a gap? And is there, can there be a gap between propositions and persons? Now, is that what you're at, going at, Jack? Because we said at the beginning of our country that our country was dedicated to this truth that's self-evident. What does that mean when you say it's self-evident? It's like non-disputable. Like if you don't see this, it's like you're blind as a bat. 
So, I mean, that's a powerful statement. It's, everybody sees this. It's self-evident. God made everybody equal, and we all have rights derived from God. If you don't see this, you're blind. So, dedicated to that proposition, was there a gap between that statement and the lived experience of some people? Anyone care to enumerate? Uh, women, slaves. <clears throat> I mean, it, it was Native Americans embedded into the very heart of the American experience. I'm not being critical, I'm just stating a fact. Is this blazing idealism enshrined in our Constitution that this proposition that all humans are created equal is an unalienable, it's a non-questionable, it's given, it cannot be disputed, it comes from God, and the tragic experience that many people have had, that it hasn't been their experience, that they have experienced these things. So, yes, Jack, absolutely, a gap exists. But here's another interesting one, I don't know if you guys like American history, but I, I find this one interesting too, and it's really right on point. Jefferson used this phrase in 1821. He talked about that singular proposition. This might surprise some of you. Okay, so on the left-hand side, they were writing the Virginia Statue for Religious Freedom, and he, he commented on it, and he said that singular proposition proved that the bill's protection of opinion was meant to be universal. So what's he talking about? On the right-hand side, this is what it really said in the text. When the preamble declares that coercion is a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, that's what the original preamble of the religious statue of freedom in Virginia said, that coercion is not in accord with the holy author of our religion. In other words, what? We can't make anybody by state law be a particular faith. It's not part of the author of our holy religion's desire to do so. Somebody in the uh, committee proposed that it should be inserted, the word Jesus Christ should be inserted in there, an amendment, and it should read, a departure from the plan of Jesus Christ, the holy author of our religion. Now, who do you think put that amendment in there? In other words, that's a proposition. The proposition really read, originally read uh, the uh, holy author of our religion. That leaves it what? It's like way open-ended. But somebody in that committee said, no, it shouldn't say the, the holy author of our religion. It really should say Jesus Christ. Who? Yes, Dr. Smith. Most of those people that most of the people that made the Constitution uh, were deists. They weren't Christians. I won't dispute that. But I want to know is who put in that amendment that said, no, wait a second. It shouldn't read, the, the, the Statue of Freedom and Religion in Virginia shouldn't read the holy author of our religion. It should read specifically a departure from the plan of Jesus Christ, the author of our holy religion. Who put that in there? Who posed that? What? Jerry Falwell. <laughs> it was in Virginia. I don't know who did it, but it's, it's quite self-evident. It's self-evident who did it. Who did it? 
No, not God. I mean, maybe God did try to do it through somebody, but it was through a person who said, or persons who said, that proposition is not accurate enough. We don't want it to be this mushy, holy author of our religion. Who's that? We want it to specifically say what? That we are Christians, the Christian God. Jesus did this. Now, what happened at the meeting? The insertion was rejected by a great majority in proof that they meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan. That's what they called Muslims back then. I don't know if you were aware that Muslims lived in our country back then and people were aware of them. Uh, the Hindu and infidel of every denomination. What does that mean? Je Jefferson was triumphant over this. He was rejoicing over this. What does it mean? That the freedom of religious statue in Virginia was written up in such a way so that anybody that believed in any form of God or higher power could have religious freedom. If they would have left Jesus Christ in there, what would have happened? Exactly. And so the early framers said, well, that's not what we want to do in our country. We don't want to create a Christian state-enforced run government. We want to have a government that says to everybody, whatever your faith is, you're free to practice it. Isn't that interesting? So what is, what is, uh, what's that singular proposition that uh, Jefferson points out? That's his language. The singular proposition was the one thing that saved us. And, and he considered this, by the way, to be one of the three greatest things that he did in his life. This, uh, he wanted this listed on his uh, tombstone. Uh, he was most proud of this uh, freedom of religion statue that he put on there. <clears throat> he didn't put the Declaration of Independence on there. This was more important to him than the Declaration of Independence. I think that he would have been happy, been happy to include atheists, too. Uh, it says... Notice, notice the language they used back then. What's an infidel of everything? <laughs> I mean, we don't use that kind of language today, but what's an infidel? Fidelity, semper fi, faith. An infidel is what? No faith. Atheist. So yeah, they, they were hip to all those people too. Oh, I'm so sorry. I know. The kids ruined everything today. Isn't that amazing? What's the singular proposition? No, it's not. Uh, exemplified, exemplified by the fact that they took out Jesus Christ and left it holy author. Free then to interpret however you wish. That's the proposition that he called the singular proposition that saved freedom and religion in Virginia. So that's a proposition that the holy author, now we have the holy author rather than Jesus Christ, that's a proposition. So I'm going through all of this, why? Because I want you to see that there is a difference between propositions and reality and here's the final thing, I know you won't be able to read this. By the way, uh, Richard posted this PowerPoint on the website. You can download it. 
and have it uh, so that you don't have to worry about it went out on Logos, but Richard put it on um, uh, the church's website as well, right? It's a podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'll be able to get this. But this idea of a proposition, it's really easy. It's just when you're making a true statement about something, when you're making a claimed truth statement. But this idea of personhood actually came from the Greek theater. We, they used to put masks on, and these were called personae. And that's where we get the term person. So as you put on a mask and assume the role of a character in, in a play, you assume the role of a person. And when the early Christians really began to struggle with, what are we into here? Um, the apostles are telling us that Jesus existed before God did. So that must mean that Jesus was a person or was an entity, a being, uh, before that. And then when they got into the whole uh, discussion with Jesus about the Holy Spirit, Jesus used language that seemed to, to imply that the Holy Spirit was a being and not an it. Uh, in other words, uh, a person. And so the early Christians, what they did was they borrowed a phrase from Greek theater, personae, and began to talk about, what was the quote you gave us from the hymn earlier? God in three persons. That's where that terminology came from. The early Christians invented the notion of this personhood thing as they wrestled with the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are they its? Are they things? Are they beings? Is the Holy Spirit a force? Or are they persons? And the whole struggle of the New Testament has been now to allow the apostles to tell us propositional truth about persons. And where we have the biggest difficulty as Christians and also the Jews did before us, the Pharisees did too, it's really easy to what? Get so focused on the propositions that what? Who can see this? We forget what they're about. We forget who they are about and who they are pointing us to and the experience that lays on the other side of the proposition. So let's now jump to John 4 and look at some of the things that Jesus interacted with with the woman that this story is about. And this is where the phrase spirit is God or God is spirit comes from. This is a proposition pointing to a person. And I want to show you briefly how the subtext of geography, ethnic, gender, and religious sacred space issues become a ladder once we understand all these things in this dialogue that Jesus has. Once we understand them, they will lead to us coming to the understanding of Jesus in the climactic conclusion that he gave to us. An hour is coming and now is. So he said this 1900 years ago. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, such persons the Father seeks 
to be God's worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship God in spirit and truth. So <clears throat> let's, uh, let's talk about this. Spirit is God. God is spirit. And geography. If you want to follow along, I'm in John 4. The first part of the verse says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Um, now, this is a little tricky uh, statement. Um, did he have to pass through Samaria? Well, it depends. Um, the usual route, and you can see, uh, I'll point it out here, would be to go around both ways, avoid this whole area coming from Nazareth, you'd come down here to Jerusalem, going from Jerusalem, you'd go back up north this way. You wouldn't go through this area at all. Um, so when the text says he had to go through, does it mean it was a geographical necessity that he had to go through? No. And he had to go through must mean something else. It must mean he had some business that he had to take care of or whatever. But this was noted by John because this would not have been the typical thing that a Jewish person would do. Does anyone know why? They didn't, they didn't care for each other too much, and we're going to see why in a minute. But just want to point out to you that he did not have to do that. <clears throat> um, he did it on purpose. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, before we get into the details, obviously she's an intelligent person, so right off the bat she identifies herself how? What's her self-identification? I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a female. And you, you're a Jew, and you're a male. So she's obviously hip enough to understand what's going on, and she asked him this question. Now, here's the Greek word that's used here, sugkraomai, no dealings. Um, it, on the most primal level, that word is used in ancient Greek literature to mean you don't do dishes together. So uh, wh wh what's doing dishes together imply? Yeah, some form of really pretty close friendship in which, you know, you're having potlucks and whatever. Everybody's dishes are going into the same water. And that's like a pretty high degree of familiarity, right, and, and intimacy. And from that primal illustration all the way up to not even talking to one another, you get the, the taste and the feel for what the Jewish and the Samaritan situation was. Why was that? Uh, again, you won't be able to read this because uh, it's too small, but you can read the big words. Uh, mixed ethnicity and mixed spirituality. Uh, how did the Samaritans come about? The Assyrians in 722 B.C., so we're going 750 years before this encounter Jesus had with this woman, came into northern Israel, and they evacuated most of the ten tribes and brought imported people in and they, this is the way they ruled and reigned. They left some of the Jews there, brought a bunch of other people in, and what happens when you forcibly relocate one group of people in with another group of people? What tends to happen? I mean, 
young boys look at young girls from different ethnicities and what do they discover? God is infinite in God's ability to make good-looking people, right? And so interbreeding took place. And of course, from a Jewish point of view, what? Verboten. You can't do that. So that's why they're called the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Now, of course, the Jews recognize that, yeah, you've got some Jewish blood in you, but you're no longer pure Jewish. You're mixed. And on top of it, some of the Samaritans who were Jews went on and continued to worship Yahweh. They had the five books of Moses. They had their own priests. They had their own place of worship. Uh, They didn't recognize the prophets. They thought the Jews in Jerusalem were wrong in their interpretations. In other words, they set up what? Their own counter-Jewish religion. They worshiped Yahweh. They claimed Yahweh was their God, um, practically next door to the Jews, as it were, and they lived out their faith in their customs, and the Jews lived out their faith in their customs. And between them, no dishwashing. I'm sorry? Was that the first Reformation? The first Reformation? Um, <clears throat> no, um, although I'll take your lead and say I think where Jesus is going with this room, woman is the Reformation that we all need. And we'll say that. So, uh, hey, does this remind you of anything today? What would, you see, what would you see in our world today as the closest commonality between the relationship Jews had with Samaritans? In other words, they have similar faiths, similar expectations, um, but at great odds with one another. Um, well, yes, all interracial difficulties that we have in our culture today, including so-called mixed peoples, would be part of this dynamic, Yes. Do you think with Islam? It's, it's a, the Samaritan Jewish thing is very strongly analogous to the Christian Islam thing that we're going through today. It's very close. Why? Because we have, the Samaritans and Jews had very many similar beliefs. Christians in, in Islam have many similar beliefs, including the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know if you guys realize that Islam believes that. Now, they put a different spin on it and a different interpretation, but it's crazy when you really look at even what people like ISIS believe. It's very similar in some ways to what Christians believe is going to happen at the end of time. Did you realize this? Uh, you want to get a good article and read uh, what, I, what ISIS really believes. It was in Atlantic just recently. What ISIS really believes. Look it up, Google it. What ISIS really believes in Atlantic. It's really amazing. You'll find many similarities. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, very similar, yes, right? Uh, same core faith, but ethnic, religious tensions, absolutely, another good one. So, spirit, of, spirit is God, which is Jesus' climax in this story, must have something to do with land issues, ethnic issues, and gender issues. What we're doing is trying to get to what does it mean God is spirit by going through all of these things that Jesus took this woman through. 
uh, she, she changes the subject onto paternity. This is a big thing in the human experience as well. Um, <clears throat> after the master says to her, <clears throat> if you knew who I was, you'd, you'd ask me to give you a drink. And uh, <clears throat> I would have given you living water. Well, she says, sir, you don't have anything to draw, draw with. The well is deep. Where will you get the living water? You're not greater than who? You're not greater than Jacob. Jacob is the one that gave us this, this well that we're actually sitting on. When did Jacob give that well to those people? When did he dig that well? Unbelievable. 1925 B.C. That's 1950 years before this conversation. Do you realize that would be like, if, if that was our situation, that would be like being connected to a place that, um, well, it would be like for you to have some connection to the ancient springs of Rome. Like one of your relatives had dug a, one of the wells at Rome to go back to almost 2,000 years. That's her connectivity. Who's her, who's her figure? Who's her um, a connection to history, to her people? Who's the biggest person she can think of? Jacob. You're not bigger than Jacob, are you? So paternity is a big issue in her mind. Uh, the master says and introduces this metaphor, which I think is the reformation that the whole storyline is trying to get at. God is spirit. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I give will become in those persons a well of water springing up to eternal life. He's switching the metaphor a little bit to suggest that the Spirit of God is like a living stream, is a, a living being that can actually come inside of a person, inside of a person, and spring up within them and give them the, the water of life. Now, this passage that I'm showing you here is from John 7. And you can see it's like a commentary, as it were, on John 4 passage. Jesus tells this woman, I'll give you this stream of living water. Uh, later on, three chapters later, the master says, and the interpretation by John down at the bottom, this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in were to receive, but the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when he brings up this water, he's talking to this woman metaphorically about what? A direct experience with God, how? As spirit. As spirit, a spiritual experience he's talking about. He's not talking about something that happens necessarily in a place or involved with certain people. It's a spiritual experience that she needs and we all do. So Jesus is getting this idea from this passage in Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me. What does Jeremiah call God? The spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So in this metaphor, God is the living spring that's going to be inside of every human being, springing up as spirit and giving them life. What humans do is what? We get cisterns, and what we want to do is what? Capture some of that water and do what with it? 
toward it. And you, do you see the metaphor of, of the amazing thing that humans do? We're going to get some of God or get some religion in a jar and then take it where? Over here. By doing that, we're removing the jar from what? From the source. So we're moving from the source to a secondary. And what does God say about those pots that we make that supposedly hold this water? They can't. They bleed out. So all of the things that this story is talking about, the geography, the ethnicity, the gender issues, and I want to keep going and show you one more. She then brings up the idea of sacred space. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So now we have the discussion, the religious discussion of what? Sacred space. Whose place of worship, whose space is the place where God can be experienced? And what's the master's answer? No, it's not Jerusalem. I know, I know why you would say that. What does the master say here? Hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now he's building to this climactic truth that God is spirit. So the implication of God is spirit means what? Sacred space has got to be what? Or you could say God is a universal spirit so that that means any place that you are at, God is. All right, so it is now 10.15. I'm sorry I ran off uh, over a little bit. Um, but I want you to take this, what you've learned, and come back next week and we'll continue the discussion. I'm going to leave you with this thought. What did Paul mean when he said, <clears throat> we once knew Christ according to the flesh, but we now no longer know him this way. What does that mean in light of the fact that God is spirit? In this passage? Uh, who, think, who thinks they know? Who's the we? Yeah, he's talking about those people who have come to know the living water and have tasted God as spirit. The, the disciples, the apostles, the ones that they are introducing to, not just propositions about God, but the experience of God. Once they've had that experience, he says, we used to know Jesus according to the flesh, but now we don't know him that way anymore. Don't you think that's an amazing statement? Well, that's part of what he's claiming. <clears throat> well, that's what I want you to think about. If it's possible that since God is spirit, you can know Jesus now differently than if you would have known him in the flesh, which is what the Im implication is.
Does anyone, by the way, know Jesus in the flesh here? Okay, so we're not going to have that experience. You might have an episode, but you're not going to have the same experience the apostles did. So uh, this week I want you to think and pray about that. What does God as spirit mean that we've moved on, God has moved on? We're not going to go back and know Jesus according to the flesh. If we're going to know him, how are we going to know him? In the spirit. We're going to have to go into another, another zone, another realm. And that, of course, is what God is spirit is all about. Taking us from our preoccupation with geography, ethnicity, gender, all of the things that we're so worried about into the spiritual realm. Yes, Judge. Uh, yeah, his question is, if Jesus is living in people and you're interacting with those people, then in effect you are inter interacting with Jesus in a fashion in the flesh because he's in their flesh, right? That is what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, yes. However, I mean, that's, the, that's the, still the bridge and the connection there, but still it's not, you are not Jesus, Right? And not, neither am I. So when we're interacting with each other, it isn't just the exclusivity of John and John connecting. There's also the spiritual dimension. Jesus is in us. Yes? Doesn't this then move us into a very subjective realm and away from verification? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I knew some intellect like you would bring this up. <laughs> and... Uh, <coughs> You know, we try to put this whole New Testament package together. If you wrench this story completely out of its context and only used it, yes, you could uh, wind up having your own private Jesus. There's no doubt about it. And in fact, Paul even talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, if somebody comes to you and heralds to you a Jesus <laughs> other than the Jesus that we heralded to you, or you receive another spirit or another gospel. In other words, there were people heralding, presenting another Jesus. What's that mean? Information about Jesus that really wasn't true. So as down through the history of the church, we've always had this struggle of what I wanted you to think about. Propositions, which are what? Bible statements, Bible passages, theological works, propositional truth, that this is, this is what we believe. You, we've had that dimension. And then over here, we've got this whole dimension that the New Testament talks about of what? Personal subjective experience. And what I want you to wrestle and struggle with is how do we live with both of these realities? Propositional truth plus the experience. How can we put them together in the full package? So we'll try to do that. We'll try to balance that out. So God bless you all, and I will see you in next week. Don't forget to download the PowerPoint if you want it.